Welcome to all listeners to a new episode of Barlume, the organized crime podcast, the show that explores the underground worlds of mafia, organized crime, and terrorism in the time of a coffee break. Behind the bar, there's me today, Giovanni, and I'm going to talk to you about the most influential and powerful terrorist organization of recent decades. I'm talking about Al-Qaeda. What is Al-Qaeda in a nutshell? Well, Al-Qaeda, or AQ, is a militant organization of Wahhabi ideology founded on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. But it also represents a sprawling entity that operates with a very large network of affiliated or connected organizations throughout the world. Wahhabism, which is based on a literal and very strict application of the sacred scripture of Islam, Quran, and Sharia law, as professed by the pure ancestors, the Al-Salaf al-Salihin, is a minority current in Sunni Islam, but it has become established mainly in the Arabian Peninsula, and particularly in Saudi Arabia, where it is, since the kingdom's birth, the religious doctrine of the state. And we will see throughout this episode how this element is crucial to understand Saudi Arabia's opaque and ambiguous role in relation to Al-Qaeda and terrorism financing. Even in light of the kingdom's massive operation of Wahhabi proselyte and indoctrination in Islamic communities around the world. But now, after this brief background, we're ready to start. Looking in the back, um, the cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight are you on? Flight 12. And what seat are you in? Ma'am, are you there? Tuesday, September 11, 2001. It is a warm and sunny late summer morning like many others in New York. At 8.19 a.m., Betty Ong, an attendant on the flight American Airlines 11, contacts the company. I think we're getting hijacked. She's not wrong. It's the beginning of the darkest day in U.S. history. At 8.46 a.m., that very flight crashes into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Shortly after, a second plane hits the South Tower. After burning for 102 and 56 minutes, respectively, the Twin Towers and the World Trade Center no longer exist. Meanwhile, at 9.30 a.m., another American Airlines flight crashes into the west wing of the Pentagon. And half an hour later, flight United Airlines 93 crashes into the fields in the middle of Pennsylvania. It was probably headed for Washington. The toll is terrifying. 2,996 killed hundreds missing, and tens of thousands injured. We all remember that day, what we were doing and where we were when that news came, forever changing the course of our lives and the course of history. From that day on, a new threat would hover over the Western world, silent and faceless, but ever-present, openly hostile to the way of life and culture of which the West and the United States in particular prided itself. It was the threat of Islamic terrorism. Al-Qaeda has placed an inspirational and pathfinder role in the proliferation and development of many terrorist cells over the past decades. But Al-Qaeda is also the first true embodiment of modern Islamic terrorism, which replaces that of the Cold War era, with a political and nationalistic connotation, in favor of an international scope, beyond any political boundaries. Indeed, Al-Qaeda is a transversal and global network, global in the sense that it addresses the entire community of Muslim believers, 
which is the Ummah, with the primary goal of freeing the Islamic world from Western influence and establishing caliphates throughout the Arab world that impose a strict Wahhabi interpretation of Sharia law. Moreover, with Al-Qaeda, we witness a sort of privatization of terror. With the end of the Cold War, the sponsorship, at least the official sponsorship of terror by states, as in the case of the massive US funding of the Mujahideen during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, is replaced by private funding, where humanitarian foundations and opaque non-governmental organizations, conscious and unconscious donors, enter the picture, as we will see in a few minutes. But first, we need to understand how and in what context Al-Qaeda was born. We begin with the story of a shadowy multimillionaire who has declared a holy war against the United States. To some in the Islamic world, he is a hero. To the United States government, though, he is a terrorist, a real threat to the lives of U.S. troops. He is Osama bin Laden, and Impact's Peter Arnett takes us into his hideaway and into his mind with this first-ever television interview. A shadowy multimillionaire. So began the first-ever interview to bin Laden, broadcast by CNN in 1997, that introduced the Al-Qaeda leader to the world. But who is this shadowy multimillionaire? Osama bin Laden was born in 1957 in Riyadh to a Syrian mother and a Yemeni father, and he was the 17th of 52 children, yes, you heard it right, in the richest family in the kingdom after the royal family. His father, Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden, was a naturalized Saudi businessman of very poor origins who had built the country's most influential business empire from the 1960s onward through his construction enterprise. He had played an important role in the removal of King Saud and in the rise to power of Emir Faisal in 1964, whose he was the most loyal follower and for whom he initiated the reconstruction of the kingdom, thanks to the exclusivity granted to his company on any future construction of mosques and religious buildings in the whole of Saudi Arabia. In this way, the Saudi bin Laden group made its fortune, and to this day, its equity is estimated at $5 billion, which makes it one of the most powerful multinational companies in the Arab world. But despite the extreme wealth of the family, actually, bin Laden grew up in a very religious environment with a strict discipline, cultivating early on a great interest in the study of holy scriptures. Since the beginning of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, he concretely supported the cause of the Mujahideen, the Holy Warriors, raising and providing substantial funding for Jihad leaders. In 1980, he settled in Afghanistan to join the fighting, and here begins the story of Al-Qaeda. Here he collaborated with Abdullah Azam, his theology teacher back in his university days, a central figure in his ideological formation and later a leading member of Al-Qaeda, and with him he established in 1984 the Mektab Al-Khidmat, or MAK, the Office of Services, aimed at recruiting, financially supporting, and training fighters. From the mid-1980s, bin Laden settled in a mountainous region on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border and established there a training camp with the support of Jalaluddin Akani, one of the guerrilla leaders who would then become a military commander with the Taliban government. This camp soon became an elite camp for fighters from all over the Arab world and was soon renamed the military base, Al-Qaeda Al-Askaria, or for short, Al-Qaeda the base. In its embryonic stages of development, where Al-Qaeda was essentially born as a guerrilla group, Haqqani's network simplified communication with other groups, 
but the bulk of the funding came from the US and Saudi governments through the ISI, the Pakistan Intelligence Services. Some estimates put at about $600 million the US funding to Mujahideen closely linked to Osama bin Laden. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. 9-11 struck at America's heart, but also drained its resources. The attack resulted in the wars in Afghanistan, as we just heard from Bush's words, and Iraq, and huge homeland security costs, totaling around $4 trillion. Now, try to guess how much the most spectacular attack in its history may have cost Al-Qaeda. Several million dollars? Well, no, in fact, just about 400k, which is less than one-seventieth of Al-Qaeda's annual budget in those years, considering the CIA's estimate of 30 million funds raised every year. After 9-11, top US government officials declared that fighting the financing of Al-Qaeda was as crucial as fighting the organization itself. As explained by the monograph on the financing of terrorism by the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, created in 2002 by the Bush administration to investigate all the facts and circumstances surrounding 9-11, Al-Qaeda's methods of raising and moving money have bedeviled intelligence services around the world, so much so that as early as April 2001, CIA officials claimed, quote, Bin Laden's financial assets are difficult to track because of the wide variety of mechanisms for raising and moving money. Bin Laden capitalizes on a vast and difficult to identify network with few penetrable nodes." Unquote. In order to have a comprehensive financial view of any economic organization, and Al-Qaeda is such in all regards, several questions must be answered. In particular, we will try to answer three questions. Whom and where does the money come from? How does it come? And through what channels the money is spent and or transferred? First, however, we need to clarify two false beliefs. First, contrary to what one might think, Al-Qaeda has never played a major role in drug trafficking or relied on it as a major source of revenue, unlike the Taliban, either before or after 9-11. But more importantly, despite the founders' origins, Bin Laden's personal wealth has never been the main source of funding for Al-Qaeda. But why so? In 1990, shortly after the ouster of the Soviet army from the Afghan mountains, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait required the international community to take sides, and Saudi Arabia joined the US-backed coalition supporting Iraq. This triggered strong protests from Bin Laden, who was sympathetic to the Yemeni cause, and Saudi Arabia responded by revoking his passport. The Sheikh was then welcomed to Sudan shortly thereafter by the influential political head of the National Islamic Front, Hassan al-Turabi. Here, he invested substantial funds in various ventures in the infrastructure network, while also beginning to redirect the organization toward the mission of global jihad. In 1994, the Bin Laden family, under pressure from the Saudi government, divested all Bin Laden's assets, which according to some sources totaled about $300 million. Later, two years later, when the Sheikh was forced to leave Sudan, all investments and businesses created in the country were expropriated by the government. Therefore, Al-Qaeda has always been dependent 
on fundraising to finance its operations, with an annual budget that the CIA quantifies in about $30 million. In particular, the organization relies on a network of financial intermediaries and facilitators, including banks, infiltrator or corrupt members in charities, and also imams of mosques around the world. This network collects money from a wide range of donors. While some of these know perfectly well in whose hands the money will end up, others are approached and deceived by facilitators or are convinced that they are making charitable donations, unaware that these funds are actually directed to the financing of terrorism. Much of the donations are accumulated in the month of Ramadan through Zakat, which in some countries, such as Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Pakistan, is a compulsory tax for Sunni believers. Zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam and can be roughly translated as almsgiving, whereby a portion of one's earnings goes to the less advantaged groups in Islamic society, also and especially through charities, the so-called Waqf Institutes. And it is estimated that in the early 2000s in Saudi Arabia, around $10 billion a year were collected in Zakat. Uh, make no mistake about it, uh, this, this administration will continue to take aggressive actions uh, both domestically and, of course, internationally, uh, working with our allies like Saudi Arabia, our partners like Saudi Arabia, to ensure that charities are not being abused by terrorists or other criminals to advance their evil and wretched cause. Now I'll uh, offer you my colleagues for your questions. Thank you. These foundations and institutes were in some cases infiltrated by Al-Qaeda members who diverted funds from the charity's charitable purposes to terrorist financing. In other cases, however, inter associations would know about and even participate in diverting such funds. Most of these entities, especially after 9-11, were designated as global terrorists by the United Nations and subsequently dismantled for terrorism financing. Among the various cases of such entities, it is worth dwelling a moment on the Al-Haramain Foundation, also to explain what has always been Saudi Arabia's ambiguous relationship with Al-Qaeda. Al-Haramain was established in the 1990s and soon became the most important Saudi charitable organization with the goal of promoting Wahhabi Islam around the world through humanitarian projects. Although it started out as a private organization, it was immediately closely linked to the Saudi government, to the extent that it had several ministers and officials among its senior executives. Since 1996, and especially after the 1998 bombings at the US embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, the US government obtained several pieces of evidence that some branches of the organization were involved in terrorist financing. It sought cooperation with Saudi intelligence just to find vague answers, red herrings, and covert cooperation from the other side. But this shouldn't surprise us. It is established that several government officials knew what was going on and turned a blind eye, or even actively coordinated the financing of Al-Qaeda. These were just a few members of an informal financial network, the so-called Golden Chain, made up of prominent Gulf businessmen and power brokers, which Bin Laden was already using to support the Mujahideen in the days of the anti-Soviet resistance. But beyond Saudi reticence and the lack of irrefutable evidence for U.S. intelligence, it has always been pretty straightforward to at least assume a logical connection between Saudi donors and Al-Qaeda for several reasons. Saudi Arabia has always been the richest country in the region. 
He was previously the main financier of the Afghan guerrillas. Saudi nationals have always been the majority among uh, AQ members, not to mention the Bin Laden family's history in the country. The system is widely used in Muslim countries. In some nations, many poor people rely on Hawala because it's often cheaper and more reliable than traditional banks. So many don't see anything wrong with it. How can people say this is illegal? It helps and supports poor people. Minimal costs bring maximum efficiency. We have almost reached the end of this journey into terror money. Now we are just left to answer the last question. That is, how are all the funds uh, received regularly by Al-Qaeda spent or transferred? There are mainly three means that Al-Qaeda traditionally uses to move money. The most uh, original and worth exploring among these is certainly Hawala. Actually, Hawala, which in Arabic means to exchange or to transform, is an informal remittance system which is alternative to official channels, that has always been strongly rooted in Islamic culture and based on trust. It is popular because it allows money to be moved between two countries without actually moving money, quickly and without the involvement of financial institutions. But because of its features, it is really suitable for the needs of a terrorist organization, especially in countries that have never had a strong and reliable banking system, such as Afghanistan. But why does it allow money to be moved without moving money? Well, roughly speaking, a Hawala transaction works like this. You have a customer and a beneficiary, and two intermediate agents, the so-called Hawaladars, who are located in two countries, one in the customer's country and the other in the beneficiary's country, respectively. Hawaladars are usually small businessmen in the import-export sector, so they have an official business in addition to being intermediaries. The customer contacts the Awaladar in his country, to whom he communicates the amount of the transaction and a secret code which he will also communicate to the beneficiary, a sort of password authorizing the transaction. The Hawaladar then con contacts the trusted Awaladar in the country of destination, referring the details of the transaction and the password that he is to hear from the beneficiary upon final delivery of the funds. So, without there being an actual transfer of money between uh, the two agents, the Hawaladar at the destination, subject to a password, transfers the funds to the beneficiary. The two Hawaladars will subsequently settle the debit or credit positions accumulated over time with periodic offsets between them. The advantages of this practice are pretty obvious. Hawala is fast because transactions are usually concluded in less than 24 hours. It is convenient because Hawaladars charge very low fees. It guarantees full anonymity to both parties because it does not require standard procedures, it is versatile, and it is reliable. In short, the ideal solution for a terrorist. This system is prevalent in many terrorist organizations and was probably used to finance, among others, the 2015 attacks in Paris. While Hawala was used in Afghanistan or Pakistan to make up for the shortcomings of the local banking system, Al-Qaeda operatives outside these countries have made extensive use of financial institutions. As shown in the report of the aforementioned National Commission on Terrorist Attacks on the United States, the 9-11 hijackers, who had been living for several months in Florida prior to the attacks, held credit cards and accounts with major US banks. AQ financed the hijackers exclusively through the international banking system, 
with three classic and unsuspected means, both in type and amounts. Wire transfers, typically from banks in the Arabian Peninsula to US banks, credit or debit cards to access funds held in Arab financial institutions, and then the physical transport of cash or checks into the United States. Precisely for the transportation of cash, Al-Qaeda uses an extensive and organized network of couriers, always recruited from within the organization, usually trustworthy, low-profile individuals who are not familiar with the use of the funds, and who collect the funds from hawaladars, facilitators, or donors, and bring them directly or in several steps to the destination, depending on the mode and route to be followed. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. We have now come to the end of this journey into one of the lesser known but most important sides of terrorism. What I have described to you is the financing structure that characterized Al-Qaeda in the 1990s and early 2000s. Of course, a lot has changed since that time. Much of Al-Qaeda's traditional financial network has been dismantled. The organization has suffered heavy blows, first and foremost the killing of bin Laden in 2011, but also in more recent times the killing of the leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. And major attacks have declined over the years. But as time goes by, organizations and their strategies are always changing. It is difficult to say whether Al-Qaeda today is weaker or more unstable than yesterday. What is certain, however, is that it remains, even now, one of the most dreadful and powerful terrorist organizations in the world. And with that, it is time to lower the shutters of our bar. I invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram and LinkedIn, where you can leave comments or suggestions for next episodes. Thank you for listening and have a good day. Ciao.